Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hello there, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here. On today's podcast, we have Esther Kane. But before I tell you all about today's guest and why I think you should listen to this episode, I just wanted to highlight the workshop Sweet Sobriety is having in January. This workshop is hosted by Jennifer Bradley and addresses why we have cravings, how to tell the difference between physical and psychological cravings, and what we can do to take back our power over them. Here you will learn the difference between cravings, hunger, and insulin spikes, how to identify your personal cues, triggers, and temptation zones, the food substitutions that can work for you during cravings, and some actionable ways to build coping skills for immediate and future cravings. You'll also receive downloadable worksheets for craving and triggers, weekly journal prompts, daily practices to implement at home, a recovery maintenance and safety management plan. And this workshop includes four live one hour weekly support meetings where you can ask all the questions. And I know Molly and I will be jumping in on some of those as well with recorded replays. This workshop's $50 US and will be Saturdays at 12 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. UK time, starting January 7th. All materials will be sent out on December 31st. Perfect timing for the new year. You can find out more at www.sweetsobriety.ca. On to our show. Today, we have Esther Kane, who's been an eating disorder psychotherapist for 25 plus years. Vera is going to introduce her more. So I just want to highlight some of the takeaways from this episode. Today, she shares her personal journey and talks specifically about being a highly sensitive person, something I can certainly relate to, and the correlation with being an HSP and having food addiction and or eating disorders. She also spoke to the intergenerational transmission of disordered eating and the work we must do on our emotions in order to heal our relationship with food. We had such a great time with Esther. All of us at the Food Junkies are going to be on her podcast in the new year. We hope in 2023, you will continue to choose your own path to recovery and take your time in doing so. Whatever path you choose, complete abstinence, harm reduction, or just eliminating added sugars, know that here you are loved, respected, and supported in in your own journey. Recovery is a slow, beautiful, messy, unfolding process. Just keep peeling back those layers and getting closer to your authentic self and what that self needs. Enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are talking to Esther Kane, who has been an eating disorder psychotherapist for over 25 years. Esther is a registered social worker and registered clinical counselor. She trained in family systems therapy and expanded her academic interests to trauma, mood disorders, substance use disorders, and body image. She is author of 
It's not about the food, a woman's guide to making peace with food and our bodies, and is also host of a wonderful podcast called Compassionate Conversations Podcast and has a YouTube channel. You can find her series on that channel about food and body image. Esther lives in beautiful Victoria, BC, and works virtually across Canada. She admits to surviving her own battles with anorexia, bulimia, and orthorexia, and of keen interest to us, has come to recognize some of her issues as stemming from food addiction. So let's see how Esther deals with the muddy terrain between eating disorders and food addiction in her personal and professional world. So welcome, Esther. Thank you. So glad to be here. Yeah. So uh, we always like to start with the personal journey. So whatever you're willing to tell us about yourself from your your work being in the eating disorders world and then your awareness of food addiction. Absolutely. So just to emphasize my story is the first chapter in my book. So you can read it there for more detailed version. But the short version is that my parents divorced when I was four years old. I was an only child. It was very devastating. And I didn't have any siblings, you know, to, to lean on. And I ended up splitting my time between both parents. And I found it very stressful and confusing because each environment was very different. My mother was a foodie and eventually became the food editor of the Toronto Star, where she worked for many years. Her name is Marion yeah. Kane. Yeah, I think, very you know her. I think you've been I on do. the podcast. I do, yeah. yeah. She's on a podcast and it's wonderful. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Now she's the food sleuth. But yeah, my mother's all about food, right? And my dad became a staunch vegetarian when I was eight and vegan, macrobiotic, all this stuff. So I was fed that food at his house. And then my mom was horrified by that. So when I would come to her home, she'd feed me as much meat as she could and, you know, a wide array of foods. So I call it a food war was really started between my parents and I was caught in the middle. And you layer that on with um, being Jewish, both sides of my family are Jewish and Jews have a lot of history with food in my family, you know, due to pogroms, there was starvation. So my grandfather was force fed when he was a baby until he threw up. So he had, he had a food addiction very that, yeah, uh, unbelievable food addiction his whole life. And then, then there was, you know, the emphasis, it was very, so my thesis in graduate school was actually on Jewish women and body image. And um, there's very mixed messages about Jewish women and how we're supposed to look. The old uh, version before Twiggy came along and before we had home scales was uh, the term was zaftig, and that means juicy, like it's in reference to a chicken. <laughs> so you're supposed to be round and plump, and that was considered beautiful. And then as, you know, things change in the society, thin was in. So to be very thin uh, for Jewish women was, you know, then revered. So it's it very confusing. I was kind of caught between those generations. And I spent my summers divided between two sets of Jewish grandparents who Uh, I was the only grandchild, so I was just adored and uh, spoiled rotten, which was great in some respects, but they were hyper-focused on me, and they wanted to get it right and do right by my, my parents. So, you know, my dad wanted me to be vegetarian, my mother wanted me to eat whatever I wanted, so I would spend half 
the time in England with my dad's parents and they would stuff me full of candy and junk and all kinds of stuff. Uh, they always had guests over and then I would gain a bunch of weight. And then I'd go to my mother's parents who were in Edmonton at the time. My grandfather was a professor. So I would go there and then they would put me on a diet because my mother said, she's gotten fat, do something about it. Sorry, mom, if you're listening to this, I know you meant well. So we've been through all this, done lots of therapy together. So yeah, so then I was put on this diet. So my first diet was at the age of eight. And that really started the eating disorder, I would say, in earnest. And yeah, my that's when the hiding of the eating started because my grandmother put me on a diet. She also put my grandfather on a diet at the same time. So I found out where she was hiding all the, the stash, the candy bars and stuff, because my grandfather would show me. So uh-huh. we would go and get these foods together and eat them in secret. Then during my teens, oh God, yeah, the, you know, development, uh, female development to all of that. I was blossoming and blooming into womanhood. That's suftic, that's suftic look. Suftic, I became suftic. <laughs> And I got freaked out about it. My boobs grew. I grew huge breasts. And um, I decided there was something terribly wrong with me. I need to lose weight. So I became a vegetarian. And I want to talk specifically maybe some later about the the incredible link between vegetarianism and eating disorders. Oh, course. yeah. Let, let's, Chrissy, make sure we don't forget that one. I think that's fabulous. To, to, yeah. 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 I'm actually going to have Georgia Eid on my podcast talking. Oh. She's um, a nutritional psychiatrist in the States who works. Um, she talks about why we need meat. So kind of interesting. But anyway, so I decided to be a vegetarian and I became stricter and stricter. And this turned into a mix of orthorexia, bulimia, anorexia, and eventually food addiction. And I think it started, it was also a screw you to my mother because I was rebelling. I was a teenager and I didn't have a lot of ways to rebel. So I just stopped eating her food, which really pissed her off. And that was, that worked very effectively to mess up my relationship with my mother. And that's when I just went downhill. So can you just tell us a little bit too about like, how did you get to recovery and like to where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So I've had, um, well, more than half my life has been in solid recovery. So yeah, this fits very much for food addiction. I started going to Overeaters Anonymous in Toronto when I was 19. So that would have been early nineties. Thank God for Overeaters Anonymous. I, I um, attribute all of my recovery to the 12-step program and think very, very highly of 12-step programs. It I belonged to that for about seven years, and I was religious about it. I would go at least three times a week to meetings. I got a sponsor. I worked the program, and I didn't find a total fit there because, well, none of us did because we all had these different types of eating disorders, I guess. But I, I found my recovery, and, and for me, it was abstinence. So I really had a, a food addiction for sure. Well, that's interesting um, because you identify as a food as an eating disorder clinician, and yet yes. you found a solution in the food addiction model. So how, yes. how, how did that come about? Well, 
that was all there. I didn't know where to go. Ah, I guess. Right. Yeah. I had been we went so, around then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In university. Yeah. I've been in therapy since I was 10 years old, I think. And I had never addressed the eating disorder per se. And I got really sick. I mean, in my teens and like, yeah, I, I nearly died of an eating disorder. So it was very serious, but then it kind of just turned into compulsive over emotional eating by the time I was 19. And I had done a lot of therapy. I'd been in a lot of groups for eating disorders. And I never, like I went to a group for bulimia, but I wasn't quite bulimic and, you know, all kinds of stuff. I, I did what I could. I accessed services through my university education. They offered things. Nothing quite fit. Individual therapy was good. But the Overeaters Anonymous, the piece that shifted it for me was handing it over to a higher power, or just the higher power, uh, bringing spirituality into the forefront for me was a key in recovery. The other part that was key for me that I know you folks will be really resonant with is the idea of abstinence. I realized that uh, sweets, sweets were my Achilles heel that I had to obtain from all sweets. And that helped me recover big time more than anything else. Because all these other people, I'd see dietitians over there telling me, eat what you want, but in moderation. And that doesn't work for me with sugar. I am an abstainer. I have to abstain from sugar and flour completely. Yeah. I mean, that certainly obviously speaks to my story as well in seeking a lot of eating disorder therapy and not really finding my solution there. And then, you know, bumping into Vera and given the option of abstaining uh, really was the game changer for me. And Mm -hmm. I know that you, I'm definitely also interested in the vegetarianism and eating disorder because that's not only part of my story, it's a part of so many people's story that I work with in, you know, that's them trying that food plan first. And sometimes it actually aggravates some symptoms and makes things progress quicker than I think they would, you know, if there was some additional proteins, et cetera, in there. Now you specialize in, well, you define yourself as a highly sensitive person. And I can appreciate this so much because I think a lot of individuals that I work with in addiction also define themselves in that way. So can you explain to our audience what this means and Mm. how this makes you a unique therapist? And also, can you apply it to food addiction or food addicts in any way? Absolutely. So the term highly sensitive person comes from Dr. Elaine Aron. She's fantastic. Her website is um, hsperson.com. So uh, yeah, HS person. Um, she's uh, wrote the highly sensitive person: How to Thrive in a World That Overwhelms You, and she's written several books about highly sensitive people. She's been studying highly sensitive people for over forty years with her husband. the The main thing about HSPs is that we have a highly attuned nervous systems, which make them make us highly sensitive. And I describe it as spidey senses or wearing our skin inside out. And, you know, the technical scientific term is a difference in arousability. Our nervous system. Say, yeah, it sounds like yeah. a hyperarousal. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In that HSPs notice levels of stimulation that go unobserved by others. So all of our five senses are highly attuned and we're on all the time. So everything is in full, you know, volume and 15 to 20% of the population are highly sensitive. So we are a minority 
And I go into a lot of detail on my website. I have, if you just go estrocane.com forward slash highly sensitive people, you'll find all kinds of stuff. But I believe that highly sensitive people are way more prone to eating issues because mm. it's very hard to live in a body that is so sensitive to everything on the outside. So personally, because I was highly sensitive, I didn't understand that until my late 20s when I came upon Elaine Aaron's book that saved my life. <laughs> I used food to numb the overstimulation. Um, it was a way to just dull the senses, uh, to kind of go into a bit of a food coma, you know, and I suffered from anxiety uh, greatly. So it really helped me to manage my anxiety. Would it be fair to say that um, sometimes people uh, with obesity say, I need to have that layer of extra fat to keep yes. away all the stresses of sexuality, for example? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That, that that could also be um, a response. Yeah. Survivors of sexual abuse, that's often, you know, the layering of fat is a way yeah. to protect themselves. Of course, brilliant solution to a problem, but then that problem becomes, yeah. the solution becomes a problem eventually. But yeah, yeah, it was a way of numbing. And because highly sensitive people, we don't wear, you know, our temperament on our faces that like, people can't really see. It's, yeah, it's something you have to learn to have some shields around you, some defenses, I guess. And I used that for a long time. And in my work, the reason I focus so much on high sensitivity is that once I made that link for myself and I started to see, oh my gosh, 98% of my clients with eating disorders are highly sensitive people. There is a huge link. So me being highly sensitive as a therapist, to answer your question, helps me to be able to connect very deeply. The, the pros of being highly sensitive is deep compassion, deep understanding, great listening skills, being able to really be present with people in the pit of whatever they're dealing with and to not run away. I understand personally what it's like to feel different and on the outside and feeling like you don't fit in, that there's something wrong with you. I was always told so for example, my mother who, and I can say all this, we've done all this work together. She's not, she's a, a well, let's just say she's an extrovert. She's, she's very sensitive, but she's an extrovert. And I was I'm, gonna ask, is this like saying introversion, extroversion? Yeah. So I just, I, I did yeah. my, my, the, the YouTube video that's going crazy right now that I did was what is the difference between a highly sensitive person and an introvert? So 60% of highly sensitive people are, I don't know, 60% of introverts are also highly sensitive. And then, yeah, 40% are extroverts of highly sensitive people. So the difference is, well, they're both temperaments, but the difference is in the arousal, in the, right. yeah, the sensory uh, stimulation that HSPs have. So lucky me, I get to be born an introvert and a highly sensitive person. Okay. So my mother's an extrovert and she's very just out there. And, um, so I compared myself to her so much growing up because I thought, why can't I be like her? She's not scared of people and she can go out and talk to anybody. And so we often feel very different and weird. And the majority of people are extroverted, non-sensitive people. So, you know, I've done a lot of my own personal work around this issue. So I'm in a good position to help. I see it as a calling to help empower other HSPs 
to fully embrace who they are and and really blossom into who they're meant to be. So how does this concept have any relevance to food addicts? Right on. Um, (laughs) Yes, I find the majority of my clients who struggle with any type of food issue are also highly sensitive. And often the HSP eating disorder connection is not made by most therapists. So a, a lot of my clients come to me because they say they've been to another eating disorder therapist, but they didn't get the temperament piece. Mm-hmm. So, and if it's a therapist who is a non-HSP treating an HSP, they can just miss all of the cues, right? So me being an HSP therapist, I tune in and I kind of tune into the subtleties and the nuances with my HSP clients. And can you, pick- you know, I, I have to, I have to um, corroborate or collab, whatever it is, whatever Because <laughs> I'm, I'm an extrovert and I do really well with extroverts. Like I'll say, go to groups and start doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then I get frustrated when they don't, but it's because I'm not picking up, like you're saying on that other uh, level of communication, because I don't quite get it in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And group groups for an HSP are a nightmare. Like we don't, oh. Oh, it's exhausting, right? You take on yeah. the energy of the whole yeah. group around you. Yeah. And you I mean, feel everything. Yeah, what you're yeah. saying makes so much sense because in all the emotional eating research, we're looking at that period of physiological arousal, which then we feel uncomfortable with, which then leads to the urge to go numb escape with food and creates like yeah. a binge episode. Yeah. Yeah. And so the more we do that, the more we realize, you know, that neural pathway gets wired hard. And if it tends yeah. to be on these hedonic yeah. foods, which work yeah. so much quicker yeah. than any yeah. other food, that is the link right there for a highly sensitive person and food addiction. So thank you so much. Cause I think we don't talk about this enough. No, no. And I just have two more points. Like, yeah, I don't like the term ladies, women, women. Yeah. Okay. So we Me use, too, I agree. We come yeah. from the same generation, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I say that, me, but I know it just mean. comes out and I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. I said, ladies. Okay. So I find that using so highly sensitive people use food as a drug to help them numb like i said this extreme sensitivity and to shield themselves from the harsh outer environment and also hsps okay we're internalizers and non-hsps are externalizers so they say what they need to say get it all out so hsps have a much higher tendency to use substances to stuff their emotions and even their words and things that they want to say down instead of expressing them externally because that can feel really scary so being an hsp in this world what the heck do we do because it's hard go to groups (laughs) yeah well for me like having a podcast being on this podcast being on other people's podcasts and doing a youtube channel is an insane thing for an hsp to be doing but what I realized, I'm 51 years old and I finally reached the fierce 50s. You know, I'm in perimenopause and I just don't give a crap anymore. And it's like, I have just, I don't care. I just need, I but I feel like I'm on a political mission or something. It's like, uh, we, just, we have so much to contribute to the world, so much to say, and our voices need to be out there. So I'm just taking this huge risk and doing it. And I so think- Would you say maybe that people should- you know, if you are or identify as an HSP, what I often hear is that they feel like they're walking around all the time with an imaginary audience, right? Because they're just picking up on other people's energies. And so what I'm curious about is should, if you identify with this, should you, you know, have, we say for people who are early in recovery, you know, limit the time you're going to a party or just to kind of 
yeah. like be aware that way that, Hey, you yeah. know, you're going to go to maybe a concert, something like that. And you're yeah. going to need some extra self-care and yeah. rest after that, uh, because yeah. that will be even more triggering for EDFA yeah. if you yeah. aren't aware of this. Absolutely. So I, on my website, I have a huge uh, section on highly sensitive people. If you go to my blog page, I have a whole, there's a listing because I write so much of different topics, but the HSP section is huge. There's tons of articles about how to take care of yourself. All the coping mechanisms. Yeah. 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 Okay. So can you let us know how do you work differently with someone who shows up with an eating disorder compared to someone with food addiction? How do you decipher between the two? Do you you think they're on a spectrum? Like what's been your experience? My experience is, I mean, I I think I've had all of them myself. And I, I think that a lot of people yeah, we, we, I always say, you know, I've dabbled in all kinds of eating disorders and tested them all out. My big joke, well, I shouldn't tell you my big joke. I guess it's not politically incorrect about being bullied, but anyways, I wasn't very good at throwing up. So no, but the main difference between eating disorder and food addiction to me is with food addiction, I really think there's a physiological component to it. And, you know, your, your book is so wonderful. I, I've been rereading this book is so worn now. I've got it here. I'm holding it up. I have given it to so many people and bought it for people. But thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, your work is wonderful. And I'm going to have you on my podcast. I'm so excited. So food is a physiological phenomenon, food addiction. Uh, We become physically addicted to certain foods. Now, what's funny is I, I work with men. I mostly work with women. But when I work with men, I find a big difference. I find a lot of men, it's food addiction. It's straight up food addiction. I mean, I have the odd one here and there who's bulimic or anorexic, but the majority of men that I work with, it's that they're addicted to a certain substance or that they're not eating enough of a certain macronutrient that they need. So... For example, I've had two men lately that I found this really funny. They were addicted to gummy gummies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when I told them to just stop eating the gummies, they were fine. They didn't need to see me again. I swear to God, they had one or two sessions and they were done. And another few men that I saw, I asked them, you know, what they eat in a day. They weren't eating enough protein, like hardly any protein. I said, go eat a steak every day. And they never had to see me again. So it was really straightforward. So, you know, was it, I think that was physiological for me personally, when I physically cut out sugar and grains, I was able to recover from eating disorder or whatever it was called for, for, you know, more than half my life now. And the same is true for most of my, my food addiction clients. I like the idea of the abstainer versus the moderator. I've learned I have to be an abstainer. So I've listened to your podcast a number of times and, you know, people talk about how with the difference between food addiction and other addictions, it makes it so confounded for us is that we can't just put the plug in the jug with alcohol, right? Like we have to, so in a way they talked about it being, there was a lion in the cage and we had to keep that lion locked in the cage and then unlock the cage and take it for a walk three times a day. (laughs) So it's very, very tricky. And so some people, I have found that after following, for me, a low-carb diet without any sweeteners or flowers or anything, I wonder now if I had an actual eating disorder or whether it was a combination of food addiction and malnourishment 
from my veganism, my vegetarianism, my restrictive diet, you know. So, and then eating disorders, you know, purely eating disorders, I I think that there's a lot of more of an emotional component. Some of those things include the need for control, the internalization of feelings that I was talking about before, stuffing things down, low self-worth, uh, discrimination, you know, in society, misogyny, that all these internalized messages that we get as women. I mostly work with women, as I said. And do I think there is a difference between Wait, did you ask me that yet? Or we were going to get to that. Or, or, yeah, yeah. We, basically, what, what, where's your line in the sand? Or is there a yeah. line, the continuum? Well, I think I'm hearing dietitians' voices in my head. Yeah. That, you know, we're, <laughs> yeah, we hear them too. <laughs> and I, I have, I have a lot of issues with the dietetics um, whole, yeah, the field of study. Anyway, but what I will say, you know, I do agree that you know, if someone's anorexic, you just need to get them eating food. And you don't want to say good foods, bad foods, and all that stuff. But I think there are so many nuances with, you know, with food addiction. I think you do need to say these foods you can't eat, you know. And I think it's different for for different types of, of eating disorders and then for individuals. So I don't focus on the differences between these disorders. I think that's problematic. I tend to focus on the common themes. So mm-hmm. stuffing emotions, issues with control, the multi-generational transmission process. So I'm a family systems trained therapist for of using food for any reason other than fueling the body. So I always start with a genogram with my clients and do a thorough family history. And I have never, ever worked with a client in 26 years that hasn't had this pattern of destructive eating passed down from their family of origin. So, you know, we have to address that for sure. And, uh, and food addiction, I think, Vera, you could probably speak to this, the physiological genetic component of that and whether that's passed on genetically, right? Yeah. So it sounds to me, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I, I could probably sell you on the concept of it being a continuum. Um, oh, yeah. You can be a mix of all, but it's all basically from the moderation possibility to the abstinence necessity, you know. Yes, yes. And and I treat everything, you know, yeah. along the spectrum. And I don't consider myself, I just, okay, well, we'll get into this because I know you have some more questions about that. No, I was just very excited that you touched on like the genogram and doing that as well, because I think like we, so many of us were raised on like mom or dad eating special K every morning and how like hereditary that's passed on. So mom or dad has food and body issues and that gets passed on generationally. My mother, my mother wrote a book about low fat food. It was called (laughs) The Enlightened Eater. It was Uh, in the eighties and she probably recoils now about but uh, I think it was taken out of publication because it's just so uh, the science is not there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of all of that, let's get to the vegan, the vegetarian uh, uh, issue. Okay. Super. Let's do it. Opinion. Okay. Well, okay. So this is coming from, and you know, and I may get a lot of flack and you know what, as I said earlier, I don't care anymore. Ferocious fifties. Yeah. Ferocious fifties. I'm just trying to help people and, I'm finding there's such a big push for veganism right now. And I think it's, there's political reasons for that. It's there's these highly processed food companies are pushing a plant-based diet and 
there's you know people watch these these specials on netflix about you know going vegan and then they change everything and then i have to deal with the casualties you know and you probably do too and i've never seen it like when i was vegan back in the day nobody even knew what it was it wasn't in vogue i was embarrassed to be vegan i didn't you know go around talking about it and now it's become like a it's like religious zealots people are just like oh, i'm vegan and it's this this big it's an identity badge which scares me i got so sick from being vegan and vegetarian and i compromised my health so badly that i don't know if i will ever recover my health fully as a result and there are so many now we have so much uh research out there in terms of you know, the fact that animal foods are good for us, saturated fats are not bad for us. You know, there's been this fear of fat. And I think a lot of young women especially turn to vegetarianism or veganism in an attempt to lose weight yeah. or stay thin. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah. And, you know, when, when we're talking about this, I, I, I'm really on board with the, the whole vegan movement being pushed by the processed food industry because there's this whole idea about let's do processed meat. That's that's not really meat. Yeah. It's not against it's, eating vegetables. That's fine. Like I'm a big vegetable yeah. eater. Yeah, it's yeah. The closest angle that I think the vegan. Yes, and that's not food. If you oh, read yeah. the ingredients on these fake meats, that's not food. That is just yeah. highly processed junk, and it yeah. makes people sick. And people are going around with you know nutritional deficiencies. And I'm also really linked into the connection between animal foods and brain health. And I've turned, so I've gone 360 degrees. I mean, I've turned from, you know, I was a righteous vegan. I ended up, you know, for years, most of my life I was vegan. And now I'm um, a big proponent of, of eating animal foods. So because from a mental health perspective and a physical health perspective. Yeah. And I certainly want to say, like, I definitely work with vegetarian and vegan clients who don't eat the processed foods and who really prioritize tofu and legumes and beans and do do super well, but you must be very diligent in this. And it can, you know, you certainly have to eat a larger quantity of food than you would of, you know, animal protein, but with diligence for sure it's it it is a beautiful thing that and you can recover from eating disorders and food addiction i just always like to put that other side oh, yeah. there no absolutely well. and I, and by the way i'm not against vegetarianism and i know there's ethical reasons religious reasons i'm not against that at all i work with many vegetarian clients i just uh think that we need to to not put our health at risk, our mental health or our physical health at risk in our, in the name of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot being passed in the name of, and that's, that's where I think yeah. we all agree. The pendulum has swung, I think a bit too far Yeah, and hopefully we'll come back into the middle. <laughs> so you also work with emotional eating with your clients, right? You said yeah. emotional regulation, emotional management. So you can speak a little bit about how you help people get unstuck emotionally so they don't have to turn to eating as a way to cope with their difficult feelings? Yeah. So uh, there's a whole chapter in my book called The Food Mood Connection, and that's all about emotional eating. It's a, a big, big part of the work that I do. So where I start, because uh, being a family systems therapist, I help p- people heal their emotional, what we call emotional unfinished business from their family of origin 
which keeps him stuck in the present. So for an example, most women that I work with were raised by mothers who used food for emotional reasons and then passed it on to their daughters. Eating disorders, nine times out of 10 are passed from mother to daughter. And usually there's actually three generations of eating disorders. In my book, I have exercises where people can figure out their emotional unfinished business with their families and food. It's quite in-depth. It's um, a lot of journaling and questions that you can reflect upon. And I use something that I call the emotional eating diary, which is in my book. I'm just going to reference it here. It's um, very, very useful when you have what I call a snack accident. And um, yeah, it's for when you eat for emotional reasons rather than based on physical hunger. So it's an accident. It's not my own. I got that off of a package of some snack food that I used to eat that I don't eat now, but I thought it was really cute. So the emotional eating diary you can use basically after a binge episode. I get people and it takes two to three minutes the date and the time, because I want to find patterns, the degree of physical hunger, the food that you ate, how much you ate, where you were at the time, what just happened. Was there, you know, a triggering event, what you did after eating. So that's to see if there's any purging, what you were feeling at the time emotionally. So people have to figure that piece out. What did you really need instead of food? And how could you nurture yourself without food next time? So that one, I get my all my clients to do the emotional eating diary and they start to notice themes. Oh, for example, during COVID, my goodness, that was, here's a typical one, bored eating, right? I'm bored. So I'm eating at night because I've been indoors all day and I haven't seen anybody and I put on Netflix and that's a good combo with some whatever food. And, you know, other people notice patterns of uh, loneliness that they eat when they're lonely or they eat when they're sad, or they eat when they're angry. So everybody's very different. The other thing that I want to emphasize is that when I'm working with someone around the emotional piece, I go very, very slowly because if more than, you know, I ask people when they they do an intake, okay, so if you look at a pie chart, bad analogy with food, I guess, but you look at a pie chart of um, how much energy you spend in a day, thinking about food, planning food, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. Wow. They usually they usually say about 85%. That's what they wow. come in. What a, so, what a wonderful uh, tool to, to suggest to somebody. Yeah, well, just to give you a visual, right? Yeah. Um, so if 85% of someone's energy has gone towards food and weight preoccupation, you can't just take that away without replacing it you know, with something else. So I go very, very slowly. And then the next step is to replace the destructive habits with constructive ones. So this is where self-care comes in. You know, I do food plans with people. Journaling, you know, for moods is really, really good. The emotional eating diary comes into play. I use a lot of mindfulness. Uh, really, you know, the rain meditation. I don't know if you folks have heard of that. It's it, Tara Brock has, has popularized it. Rain meditation is an acronym for... Uh, recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. So that's bridging mindfulness with self-compassion. Uh, I, self-compassion is a huge part of the work that I do. So if you you know put your hand on your heart, there's a lot of science behind this. Very you know the vagal nerve runs across the heart. So you can't. I always say to people, you can't put your hand over your heart and hate yourself at the same time. It's very difficult. So yeah. Um, so if you notice that you binge on junk food when you're anxious, for example, 
you can try 10 to 15 minutes of meditation or deep breathing, going for a walk, doing some other things. So that takes a long time. Yeah. I was curious because you said in your emotional eating diary, just you say like how you identify how you're feeling. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us in recovery. When we have food and body issues, we're so disconnected from self and we don't even know emotions and like, we're not taught emotional intelligence, right? We think we're happy, sad, glad, mad. And we know if we have more labels for what we really are, maybe I think I'm sad, but I'm really lonely, or I think I'm sad, but I'm really vulnerable. And like, do you have any tools how you help clients really identify what it is they're feeling in those moments, like develop emotional intelligence? Yes. Well, yeah. Emotional intelligence, by the way, that's Daniel Goldman's work, beautiful book, is something that we can really tap into and learn as as adults. It's it's wonderful stuff. So becoming emotionally intelligent with yourself, I think is what we're talking about here. And it's such an important thing to do. Yeah. Because, you know, I talk about people with food issues being living from the neck up. It's kind of like, they're just, they're just ahead, you know, they're just walking around and we have to get back into the body. So I do a lot of somatics. I have a lot of training in, in somatic, uh, you know, for trauma therapy, but it's also really good just for getting people back into their bodies. So anything that gets you back into your body, the body is the gateway to our experience of emotion, right? So if we can get someone just to be in their body and feel what it's like, so getting in touch with three levels, the sensations in the body, the thoughts we have in our mind, and the emotions that we have. I'm always working with those three realms Mm -hmm. together. And so for the the emotional piece, to get in touch with what you're feeling, I always just suggest some mindfulness, just stopping whatever you're doing and just taking a pause and just closing your eyes, sitting down because the closing your eyes gets rid of all the stimuli, outside stimuli. And then you just get back into your body and you just check in with yourself and just say, okay, what are the sensations I'm having in my body? Can I share something about that? Of course. You're describing that. Um, I, this was not a therapeutic maneuver. It's just something I did one day when I was, quote, in the food. Uh, um, I found that when I binged, uh, it was always very aggressive. And so yes. one day, one day um, I was binging and I stopped and I said, what am I feeling? I, I just It just crossed my mind to do that. Yeah. Stop and feel. And you know what it was? It wasn't anger. It was a, like a, a need to cry. I needed to cry. Yeah. I needed to wail. And, and when I, so yeah. I just started crying. And then the desire to eat left. This Amazing. is such a shock to me that, that yeah, yeah. now when I'm hungry, I ask myself, Vera, are you upset about something? Do you need to cry? Is that what this yes. is? And beautiful. often I'll say yes. That, that's beautiful. what you're saying, isn't it? Well, emotions are energy, right? They're just yeah. energy in the body and they can have different types of emotions have different energy, you know, like that needing to cry, that sounds like a big energy. It was getting you to rush and, and this aggressiveness with food and right. So we, we reenact what we need to express emotionally through our behaviors with food. So that's a beautiful example of here. I love it. But yeah, just stopping and saying exactly what you did in that moment, what's going on with me? What am I feeling? What, you know, you don't have to identify the feeling, but what's happening in my body. You could say, Oh, I'm just feeling really tight. There's a squeeze in my chest. I feel like racing around. I don't feel like sitting still. 
you know, and then just sitting with it. Okay. And letting that be. And, you know, am I mad about something? Am I, you know, what's going on in my life? And we can usually identify very quickly, like, oh, I'm just feeling like pulled in too many directions right now. And then, okay. So, and then always going for what is called the emotional unmet need. Tara Brock talks a lot about this. The emotional unmet need. There's always an emotional unmet need when we're grasping for something that isn't good for us, right? So your emotional unmet need was to feel sad, right? And maybe to give yourself some compassion for that sadness. The thing is, we don't want to be, we we like being with the quote, good feelings. We like being with joy and pleasure and, you know, excitement but we don't like being with sadness. We don't like being with loneliness. We don't like being with anger sometimes, most of us. So we avoid them and we do other stuff to stuff them down or avoid them. I'm sorry, go ahead, Chrissy. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you don't release them, then they just get bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger. And then we just have more fear of them. But once we start, like I always talk about, you know, how Vera said she had that really hard cry, like those, that only happened to me in treatment. And I always yeah. looked at those individuals who could just cry and it was like a pretty cry. And you'd be like, <laughs> how they do that? Like I've never, it's my uh, very uh, violent and aggressive yeah. and yeah. You have to practice crying and, and let it happen and embrace yeah. the emotion. And yeah. then it's not, it doesn't feel so all encompassing. And I think that that's just yeah. it. It's like we, they should be teaching kids today. Like, Hey, now we're going to do 10 minutes of crying. And yeah. see what that feels oh, like. I right. really feel like that could be yeah. a game changer. So, my, well, my I've got a little niece. My sister Ruthie has a baby here, her and her partner, and um, I'm so excited. She's two and a half, and she's going through this wonderful phase where she's just feisty as heck and just all kinds of emotions. So, but my sister showed me this book she has for her, and it's all about emotions, and each emotion is a different color. And we were all sitting there together and my little niece was telling me about her emotions through these colors. It was like, oh, so I think it is happening. Yeah. So what really strikes me about what you're talking about is that uh, these tools, they would apply to your eating disorder clients and to the food addiction clients. Like it would, it would just work all of this stuff. Absolutely. That's, that's kind of why I don't put things into different camps because to me, the the solution is always the same for every every you know situation like we have to be in touch with our feelings we have to feel our feelings we have to sit with the feelings we have to learn that they aren't going to last forever there's a lot of uh, people that are scared that if they feel really sad they're going to be depressed and then uh-huh. they'll be stuck forever but that's unless you have clinical depression that's not how it works feelings just come and they go and they rise and they fall like waves in the ocean and we have to practice being the ocean that can hold all of those waves. Yeah, it's it's really important. Go ahead, Chrissy. Yeah, I was just going to say, can you tell us a little bit more about your program and your series that yeah. you do? Yeah, I'm 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 just I'm, I'm mostly just doing individual one-on-one therapy, but I'm starting to bust out a bit and I want to do more because there there is a need and I'm getting a lot of inquiries about other things that I can do to help more people. So like your um, podcast. Yeah, yeah, the podcast is just amazing. So I have a, a free audio book. Well, it's yeah, there are chapters based on my book. It's not about the food that you can get from my website. So I cover the main six sessions are why diets don't work, mindful eating, the food mood connection, meditation and relaxation. I'm a big proponent of that. 
changing our minds. That's about cognitive behavioral therapy and how our thinking gets us into trouble. And then the last one is I love this body. That is my feminist rant. And that is that covers society's beauty standards and ideals and how women came to be self-hating our bodies and the externalization, the critique of media images, learning to love the skin they're in. The So the YouTube food and body image series, well, the YouTube channel, as I said earlier, came to me and the podcast because people have been asking me to do that for a very long time. And I, I used to be so anxious. So here's an interesting link. My anxiety, you know, I've, I've been treated for anxiety for most of my life and it was horrendous until I started eating meat. So, you know, if you want to know about the, the vegetarian thing, my, and, and enough meat. So when I started eating enough meat, my anxiety reduced by 75%. So that is just an incredible thing that's happened to me. And that has allowed me to, I think, you know, my brain is just working better and my whatever it is, Vera, you would know more about the physiology, but anyways, it's incredible. So now I'm able to do all these things. And then, you know, I decided as I started to feel better and better, my anxiety was disappearing that I would go out there and take the show on the road. So I'm so excited about, and I just love it because I've learned that being a therapist, I'm interviewing people all day. So it was a natural extension to, to interview people. And um, the body image series is is really fun. So I got together a series, and I'm still working on it, and, and Vera, you're going to be part of that, where I interview other what I call body image warriors um, in order to form more of a community around talking about disordered relationships to food in our bodies in the hopes that we'll find strength in each other's stories, share some helpful tools and methods that people can use to heal their relationships with food and how they see their bodies. And the inspiration came out of being isolated during COVID, felt so isolated. So many people were isolated. So many people have the eating disorders. Vera, I'm sure you would know that food addiction must have gone up exponentially. We need more community. And being a highly sensitive person, so I'm also doing a series on highly sensitive people, um, I'm finding that that, that the, the medium of video is really good for highly sensitive people. So, you know, they're really, um, they don't have so much stimulation. So it's, so I want to branch out into doing more things for the community. So that would be, let me just see, I'm thinking of doing like online groups and courses for people with any type of eating issue, learning to love themselves and heal themselves from that. And also something for highly sensitive people. Okay, you do have your flag in the in, in the sand or whatever the phrase is um, in eating disorder camp. How how do you fit in that world? Have you had any flack? Because uh, they don't I don't. Like, they don't like no. those addicts. No, 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 I don't no? at all. So I wanted to speak to that. I, yeah, I thought that was yeah. really funny. Yeah. So basically, okay. So yeah, you had sort of asked me a question, but food addiction is highly controversial in the eating world. How can we better bridge the gap? So here's what I'm thinking. I'm wondering if it's a reflection of our society's tendency towards polarization. Ah. I'm also guessing that there's a political underpinning to this in terms of what gets funded and what doesn't. I, I know that there's a lot of money to be made on treating eating disorders. I've seen that a lot and probably not so much money to be made to treat food addiction. Exactly. There's a, there's a lot of drugs for eating disorders that, and they're making a lot of money yeah. and they're funding yeah. a lot of the uh, internet sites and we don't have anything to sell. We're telling you to stop. 
Right, 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 right. And common sense solutions. Yeah. And do 12 step groups, which don't cost anything. Yeah, I know. So I find the whole eating disorder world is tasteful in many respects. I stay away from the whole thing. I basically just am a hermit. I just stay in my office and do my own work. I have gotten criticized and a lot of flack and it just pisses me off. I, I, I just, you know, we're all just trying to help people here. So I, I feel it's highly polarized. There's many camps saying that their way is the right way and everybody's got these their techniques and their tools. And but I believe there's there was a book written about addiction I'm sure you're familiar with many years ago called Many Roads, One Journey. And it was for women with addiction. And I'm sort of think along those lines that we're there's many roads and that we're all on the journey. We should be focusing on our similarities, not our differences. Yeah. I think it's just yeah. a large reflection of the outside world that we're embroiled in. Yeah. And I love that Esther. And I want you to know, you can have a community with our food addiction professional network because we are really looking for individuals who are not just applying one model, right? Like that doesn't work for everyone. We need to take little pieces of everything. Like you said, mindful eating, even intuitive eating, if it comes to real food and, you know, for some people, it's like that food addiction model. And so also body image work, emotional eating, like let's do it all. there's yeah. not yes. one exact like prescription for anyone. So yeah, yeah. And I do have um, a community. Yeah. So. I'm, yeah. I'm really impressed with your willingness to listen from the eating disorder world when you're working, I guess, in isolation, that you're so open to this. And that's exactly what, uh, I mean, that's unusual. And thank Why you. Why wouldn't I be? I don't get it. Oh. It does. It's, it's all part of the same package as far as I'm concerned. I just um, interviewed Joy Kitty. Do you know her? Yeah. Yes. She's in our community. <laughs> yes, yes. So Joy Kitty is a low-carb yeah. ketogenic dietitian. She's so, oh, she's hilarious. I love her. But we were talking about this, that there's no one-size-fits-all to you know treating eating disorders, food addiction. Everybody's different. Everybody needs different things. And why don't we let the consumer decide instead of the experts? Right. Enough of this. I mean, you know, the consumer is who we're serving, isn't it? Right. And all we're trying to do is help that person find their journey to ideal with food, relationship, body, all of it, right? Yeah. It's like, we can't tell them what that looks like. Only they know what that looks yeah. like. So I think it's about giving people their power back. You know, I, I, I think that so much of the eating disorder world is medicalized and, you know, and it's a very sort of patriarchal old top-down system that isn't working anymore. And, you know, there's a real dollar bottom line there as well that I'm not interested in. (laughs) I I don't do this for the money. (laughs) So where can our listeners find you? Okay. So they can find me on my website. So it's just www.esthercane.com. And I've got everything on there. Also for the listeners, I want to offer a free copy of my book as an ebook version. All you have to do is email me and I will send you a copy. So my email is esther at estherkane.com. And there's an H in there. And then Compassionate Conversations. I would love people to check that out. It's on my website. So it's estherkane.com forward slash compassionate dash conversations. Great. And I will get that all for you and I'll make sure to put it in the show notes that we have. And we just want to wrap up with our signature question, which is if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction and or addiction and recovery, 
what would that be? What would you well, say I, to her? Oh, I just love this question. Yeah, it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I appreciate it. It got me to think and do my own journaling. So what I would say to her is probably my 15 year old self. I would say it's not your fault, sweetheart, that you have this problem. This was handed down to you from your family, your culture, and the society you grew up in. It is a survival strategy that is serving you for now until you find healthier solutions. This very challenging problem that you have now will one day become one of the greatest things that ever happened to you because you are going to transform it into your life's purpose and help so many others who are struggling to heal as well. What once seemed like a curse will someday be perceived as a blessing. Wow. Okay. That makes me want to start right. crying. So yeah. that's good. Yeah. Like I'll, <laughs> I'll have a little release after this. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Esther. It has you. been amazing meeting you. And, and Esther, you. I want to say, you know, you're in the ferocious fifties now. I'm in my sixties. Yeah. You don't know what it is. Is it the sexy sixties or the sixties <laughs> yeah. or the, um, you look fabulous. Yes. Anyway, it, it only gets better. I, I guess until it doesn't, but it's, 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 until you're yeah do do those ferocious 50s that's when i started to get ferocious too so wonderful join the team (laughs) thanks Vera. i I look forward so much to having you on my podcast i'll send you all that the questions Right, right on thanks for joining us this week on food junkies recovery from food addiction make sure to join our facebook group sugar free for life support group i'm sweet enough You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.